Good afternoon, church. Martin's a very snappy dresser, so I feel like I, I need to apologise for... It doesn't, I'm partly colourblind, right, so it doesn't really bother me, but... My, my daughter bought me this tie, the first tie my daughter has ever bought me for my birthday last week. So I, I promised her I would wear it today, and it doesn't quite match, but who cares, there we go. She was fired up, so. My wife asked me, why do I always wear black clothes? Because I'm colourblind, right? Black is really simple, so you can't go wrong with black. Alright. What have I just... What have I done? Change your clothes. <laughs> I'm opening a barbershop, so anyone who wants to... Uh, if I break that, my wife will kill me. There we go. I am opening a barbershop. That's quite cramped up here, isn't it? I don't quite realise how little space there is. Right, so. I'm set, alright. Hair dryer. I know what, Tam knows what this is, yeah. Shears, clippers, yeah, okay. Better move these off here, please. I, I have a problem with all three of them, though. Well, I, I, I don't know if I've ever used that one, but I have a problem with the rest of them. What, what, what's my problem? Our present. Well, they might be noisy. What, what else is my problem, given where I'm standing right now? Power. Power. I mean, they, they work fine. In fact, I mean, as my wife tells me on a daily basis, that, that, that works fine. And my son will tell me that that, that works fine. You, you might not like the result, but it, it works, you know. <laughs> And I use that on a regular basis. So, 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 so they all work fine, right? But they need power. Okay. I will put that down there. Otherwise, I will take that. Do you ever feel weak? I'd like to be able to say, you know, there's, you know, that's the kind of wrong way to think about life and whatever. But, 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 but the truth is, we are, right? We are weak. And there's a reason for that. We, we are created to depend on God. And God is like the electricity. We are like the tools. All right? And prayer, I would say, is what plugs us in. Prayer is what plugs us into God. I mean, yeah, sure, you know, the, the blood of Jesus does that too. But, but prayer on a, on, a, on a more regular basis is what plugs us in. We can be a perfectly useful tool, a perfectly functioning tool in a sense, but we're completely useless. We're, we're, we're completely useless. I mean, a sander like that, I might as well just do it with a sanding block in my hand, right? There's no way that I can generate electricity any other way except for plugging these tools in. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. Prayer is what plugs us into the plan and the power of God. And I think that's, that's the heart, right, of the Lord's Prayer. It's something I didn't really understand. I mean, you know, the Lord's Prayer is prayed every Sunday in churches all over Britain, probably much of the Western world. Right? And, and that line, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But what Jesus was actually saying there is, is it, it's a prayer for, not, not simply for, you know, in, in an abstract sense, God, I pray that you do your will on earth. It's, it's a prayer of connection with God. I pray that your will, God, is done in and through my life 
our lives on earth as it is in heaven. We participate. We don't just say the words, God, you go ahead and do your will. It's, 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 a, it's our plugging into God. That your will, God, will be done on earth in and through our lives as it is in heaven. We're going to look at a man today in the form of Elijah. And we're going to see several things. We're going to see that the plan and the power comes from God. But also that in accomplishing God's will, there was a very clear purpose and role for Elijah as well. Turn with me to 1 Kings 18. Can we go back a slide for a second? And the title of the sermon is that point, okay? Pray for fire and look for rain. So we'll start in 1 Kings 18, verse 1. Pray for fire and look for rain. 1 Kings 18, verses 1 and 2. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Alright, I've got a set of, I think, seven sort of points that just come out simply from the passage itself. But the first one is simply this, that God had sent the drought and the famine to prepare people's hearts. God had sent the drought and the famine to prepare people's hearts for generations, way before Ahab, if, you know, if we know uh, the context a little bit. Israel had turned from God. You know, and the drought and the famine was a way of getting people to kind of question, something is wrong, right? There's no rain. Something is wrong with the way we're living. You know, it was preparing people's hearts. You know, that happens in the world, right? God creates, I think, a drought and a famine for people in the world. And I think we see that a little bit, right? Um, uh, Rory said it in his welcome, uh, I think, last week. My son Levi had this uh, block. Many of the kids, I'm sure, will, will remember something like this. Um, and it has shapes, different you know, shapes on each side of it. I think there's n- n- three shapes on each side or something like that. And you have different size and shape blocks that go into the things, right? You've seen something similar to that? So there's a triangle one and you have to fit the triangle through and it's meant to get the kids to think about the, you know, piecing the thing together and looking for the particular shapes and lining things up or whatever. And, and you know, but, but, but my son, for the first year or so, it, you know, he couldn't get the hang of it and that's probably the case with most kids. They, they try to fit the circle into the triangle shape or the star or something like that and it takes them a while to get used to it. That's what goes on in the world, Right? People have this sense that something is missing, a longing for something. But they try and fill it with all the wrong things. You know, one of my favourite films is, well, I don't know if it's one of my favourite films, but one of the lines from it anyway is one of the Pirates of the Caribbean films, I think the first one, where there's a, a captain, I forget his name, uh, Barbosa, And he's explaining this, if you haven't seen, have you seen the film? Okay, it's, it's not a great film, but anyway, it's a great line in it. But there's a, 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 the, the, this uh, crew of pirates have been placed under a curse. They're cursed to walk the earth forever or something like that. And I don't know the ins and outs. But there's this line where he's explaining why they're cursed and, 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 and what it feels like. And he says, you know, we, 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 we're cursed to walk the earth. We drink, but we're never satisfied. We eat our fill, but we're never actually full. We're constantly hungry. And I use that line all the time when we do Bible discussions with, 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 with the students on campus and things in the past. Because that's what life is like for most people in the world. 
Like they know that there's something. They have a longing for something. But they don't know what to fill it with. And they try and fill it with all the wrong things. You know, cheap sex. Uh, you know, possessions. Uh, prowess. You know, recognition. All this kind of stuff. But you know, there can be a drought, if you like, and a famine in spiritual Israel too. In the church, right? You know, God can be calling us. I mean, this was his people that he was calling here. God can be calling us too. We can feel that, 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 you know, that, 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 that uh, hunger, if you like. And there's a question of what do we try and fill it with? You know, I, I struggle with, I don't know, it could be possessions. It can be, I don't know, I, shopping, for example, is one of my things that I grew up with in the world. I just, I wanted to have, I wanted to be Martin. No, no, I didn't. <laughs> but I wanted to be a snazzy dresser, right? I did, you know. I, I kind of, I've probably told you this before, I modelled myself on someone like James Bond before I was a Christian or something like that. I wanted to be cool and sharp. I would never have worn, you know. And it, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. I should let the tie go. Should I? I can't breathe. There we go. But, but that, you know, that, 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 was, that, was, that was me, right? And I still struggle with that. I took the kids into the bull ring earlier on today. We had to take something back and get some trainers for Asia. And, you know, walking around and I see all these I think, clothes. Man, you know, clothes. It's great, you know. It's not. It's not. It's not. I, I, get, I get that kind of, what's the word? Um, the, the kind of red mist kind of thing. Oh my goodness, you know. Oh, sale. There's a sale going on. <laughs> I'll come back to that in a minute or two. But you know, the, 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 the drought and the famine was there to prepare Israel's heart. We'll pick up the story up, uh, slide number two in verse 16. So Obadiah, Elijah had just met another uh, a prophet um, who was working for Ahab. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab went, sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. You know, for three years there had been this famine. People must have been questioning, right, what was going on. What was the matter? God was using that to call them to this point, to get them to make a decision. You know, probably thousands of people gathered on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is this mountain range that's about 1,700 feet in height, right? But its positioning is also important. It's situated between Israel and Phoenicia. Right, so it's a mountain range, and, and, and like in really crude terms, Baal was the god, or multiple gods, of the Phoenician people. Jehovah God was the god of Israel. And so the positioning of Mount Carmel is literally in between God, Jehovah God, and Baal. Israel and Phoenicia. It was meant to symbolize the kind of choice that the people were being called to make. Who are you going to choose? This God or this God? The true God of Israel or the God of the Phoenician people? How long will you waver? You know, the famine wasn't enough. God had to call people to make a decision. And you know, you see three things going on. One, God had created the drought. 
That was God's doing. That was nothing to do with Elijah's power, prowess, even his prayer life in a sense. I mean, this was, this was God's doing. God had created the drought. Secondly, God was the one calling them to make a decision. And he calls us to make a decision too. You know, we can be like that. We get caught. We, we, we waver. And for each of us, our struggle, the things that we waver in between, the things we struggle with will be different. I mean, we can group them together, right? There may be certain types of sin. There may be certain types of lust or greed, materialism, I don't know, laziness. But, but for each of us, that struggle will be different. But God calls us to make a decision. Don't waver. And there's a point for this too, because thirdly, we must be his agents. We're meant to be Elijah in this story, right? We're meant to be helping other people to make a decision. That's our role. God calls us to be his agents in helping people to make a decision. You know, if you ever sat there with someone, maybe, maybe it's in a, a conversation, maybe in the coffee room, I don't know, you could be overhearing someone at Starbucks, right? And, and you hear someone talking about how bad their life is. You know, they've had a broken relationship or they're lonely. Something bad has happened in their life. They've been diagnosed with something, right? And, and, and you sit there and you think, gosh, you know, wow, that person, they really need the gospel. That's good. I mean, that, that, that's our role, right? That's what we're meant to do. We're meant to be God's agent in those situations to help people to make a decision. That's our purpose. You know, when we lived in Manchester, we moved into this area uh, for about a year. Yeah, about 13 months by the time we moved here. And it was a funny place, right? It, was a, it, was a, it wasn't a, an affluent area. Neither was it a kind of a rundown area. It was kind of, compared to where we'd lived before, where there were shotgun shells and drug needles being found in the garden all the time and the police raided our garden multiple times. It was, you know, people throwing bricks through the window downstairs. I mean, it was, like, it was up class from that, right? You know, it wasn't that bad. But, but it was a strange place because everyone seemed very kind of pleasant on the outside. You know, everyone sort of would say hello to each other in the street. It was a little cul-de-sac and everyone knew each other's names and they knew most of the people had lived there for about 20, 30 years or so. Some of them moved in about 10 years ago. We were the newbies to the street, right? And it seemed like a really nice place, and it, and it was. But there was a, a family next door to us, and I won't go into all the ins and outs of what was going on, but the, the mother had lived there. She was a, a nurse about to retire. Her son had had some health problems. He had had to move back home with her. He brought with him his, a, a child from a previous relationship, a new girlfriend. She was pregnant. They were all in this quite small house, right? And I don't think the mum particularly liked it. Now, they were, they were quite friendly people, meet them individually. But our heart went out to them, right? On, on, on numerous occasions, it would be seven or eight o'clock at night. We'd be putting the kids to bed, particularly during the summer when the windows were open. And all hell would break loose. The cursing and the swearing and the doors slamming. And you were kind of like, oh my goodness. And it was really eye-opening. Coming from where we'd been before, where you know, bricks were thrown through the window, but there wasn't a lot of kind of... This was, this was really... I mean, you know, they, they were the... Cameron's distance house away from us. Everything that was said in the house, I mean, the walls were like literally paper thin. We could hear everything. And the words that were being said between family members were, were shocking. I mean, genuinely, genuinely shocking. And it went on for hours. And the police were called on a couple of occasions. This was a normal, I suppose, kind of typically sort of lower middle class, British, white British family. You would have had no sense of this stuff going on had you not lived there. It was crazy. And we started to reach out to them a little bit before we moved, you know, in a sense these are some of my regrets having moved away, right? Because there were people we were investing with before. 
There's a drought in the world. There's a famine. God is calling us to be his agents. Pick the story up in verse 22. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood but not set fire to it either. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and you prepare it first since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout a little louder, he said. Surely he's a god. I mean, perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he needs to be awakened, right? So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed. And they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. You know, Elijah gets them to build this altar, right? And to pray to Baal. Baal, there were multiple Baals, but in, Baal was the sky god, right? This was who he was. He was the sky god. He was known as the god who would send lightning, for example, fire. He was known as the god, the fertility god as well, the god who would send rain. This had been a very embarrassing time the last three years for the god, the rain god, the god of fertility. This was the chance, right, for Baal's prophets to do something, to say, look, you know, Baal is the true god. He can send fire, he can answer. So they started to dance around and call out. You know, and Elijah begins to mock them. There was a rabbi in uh, centuries past called Rabbi Yarchi, who, who, when he translates this, perhaps he's gone, perhaps he's away somewhere else. He translates that, perhaps he's gone to the lav, perhaps he's gone to the toilet, right? He was literally trying to say, Elijah was being as crude and insulting as he possibly could be. And what's their response in verses 27 and 28? Well, they start to shout louder. They cut themselves. I mean, there's blood, their blood flowing, not just the bull's blood. They shouted louder and louder, cut themselves, and no one answered. No one heard them. No one was listening. You know, false gods can't answer prayers. We can pray to and depend on false gods. Going back to that shopping thing before, I mean, who was shocked by the the Black Friday thing last year? Black Friday because it's satanic. I mean, it's just dark, right? That's, that's dark. I worked in the next sale back in 1998 or 9 or something like that back in Manchester. And even that, that was pretty grim. But like, no offense, sisters, it's not, but, but, but it was the women. The women were coming to blows over clothes, right? I mean, it was just, I don't know what shoppers did. What were we there for? We were literally picking up clothes to put them back on the thing for someone to rip them off pick them up, throw them down on the floor again. And these women were literally coming to blows over, give me that 
picks up. You saw the people. You must have seen the video footage of the guys carrying the, the what was it, a TV screen with a woman lying on the screen like this. <laughs> You're not having it. It's my 50 inches. How sad. That's the world. This is the world we live in, right? These are the false gods of the world. You know, one of the ones that gets me, and maybe you can relate to this as well, and I think it's one of the most insidious gods around. And it's TV itself, right? Don't go there. (laughs) Don't say EastEnders again, all right? You know, I can really relate to this one. I can. So so, 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 so I'm not a a biologist or a doctor, so I can't claim authority on this, but I read certain, certain things on this. They did studies on kids, and you may have followed some of this stuff a while ago. Studies on kids and TV levels and all this kind of stuff. And the release of the chemical dopamine. Now, you probably, if you followed any of this kind of thing, dopamine gets a bad press. It's, it's not, dopamine is not, you know, it's, it, it's not like a, a drug or something like that. It actually performs some very good functions in the brain, apparently. But dopamine is also the neurochemical associated with addictions, right? It's the reward chemical, technically speaking. And, and, and they do studies on like, the release of dopamine in the brain to do with television, for example, and kids' TV. And, and, the, and, and, and I was shocked when I read some of this stuff recently about how even like CBBS, for example, uses some of this research to figure out if we have a long take, you know, like a, a, a long kind of panning round, lots of things going on, and, and, and there's not cuts in the editing, children lose interest, right? This, this dopamine kind of wears off, but but. Dopamine is released when you see something new or interesting, or experience something new or interesting. So the, the, the editors of CBeebies, which is a pretty, you know, it's not, the, uh, it's not satanic or anything crazy like that, right? But they figured out, if we, if we keep cutting between different things and keep each segment quite short and figure out the editing, we can get the kids, keep their attention, keep that kind of dopamine flow uh, going. Some of the research I read recently said that there are concerns among neuroscientists that this dopamine being produced every single day for many years uh, through, for example, uh, playing computer games. Any teens in the room? Playing computer games. Just look at Rory, actually. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) May change the reward circuitry in a child's brain and make them more dependent on screen media. Isn't that true for us, too? Like, TV is our comfort. Right? We're Britain. I mean, you know, this, it's cold outside, so you don't, you know, you don't want to go outside in the evening. So what do, what do you do? You got your, you know, we, you know, most of us don't turn to the, the bottle of alcohol or something like that. It's much more insidious than that. It's television. Like if I, go, if I go to the gym early in the morning, if I go for a prayer walk early in the morning, I'm shocked at like 6 o'clock in the morning, how many people's TVs are on? It's the thing people, and, and, okay, it's, but it's the news. I'm catching up with the, okay, sure. Many of us stick on the TV for our kids first thing in the morning. And then what happens in the evening? You're coming home, you've done that, coming home late from work, it's 7 o'clock at night, people come in and it's cold outside, they've had their food, and what do they do? 7 till 11 at night for the average Britain, British family, it's TV time, right? It's insidious. TV is like our comfort. It's this thing we feel like we can control. And, and, the, and the danger, I'm really aware of this to myself, the danger I think with, with TV that's kind of connected to all this is we feel like we're living this adventure. I love movies. I don't really watch anything else. We cancelled our TV license ages ago. But I like movies. I like action and adventure movies. And, and the thing with that, and the, the reason that it feels so good, like, because we feel that we're there. Maybe it's romantic movies for you sisters. You know, right? I, my, my wife likes romantic movies. I, ca- I, can, I can dig it. As long as we kind of alternate. I can do an action movie and a romantic movie. You know? 
But, 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 but we feel the emotions. We connect. Like there's something inside of us that kind of... And we feel like we're living this adventure. This romance. We're not. We're just kind of watching life pass us by, watching someone else on screen. But it's this thing. It's, 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 it's an insidious idol. False gods can't answer. Pick it up in verse 30 again. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the uh, the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the ball into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. And they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord. So that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. It took courage and trust. I've gone past verse 35. Elijah had to stand there faced with, I mean, he'd called 850. I don't know whether the other 400 prophets of Asherah actually came. It's, they're not recorded. But certainly the 450 prophets of Baal, they did. And he was careful, right? He was methodical. Each little part of this has a purpose, has a meaning. Twelve stones. I mean, that must have been deeply moving. I bet even as the people were watching, there must have been something stirred in them. Twelve stones. The twelve tribes. We're God's chosen people. Every part of it had a meaning. Twelve jars of water poured out on the altar. You know, I was at the gym the other day, watching this thing about uh, Winston Churchill. And I was just, I was struck. I mean, I I studied the Second World War and the First World War a long time ago. Almost 20 years ago now. And I'd forgotten that that the impact that this one man had on not just British history, but but world history. You know, I was struck by his energy. He was not a young guy at the time of the Second World War. I mean, he wasn't as old as he was by the time he actually finally died. But, you know, he was not a young guy. But his energy was crazy. He would travel to all different parts of the world to help influence the war effort. He was the one who went to America, you know, had a very specific conversation with Truman at the t- you know, just after Pearl Harbor, that they say was pretty much instrumental to America deciding to join that effort against Germany rather than go and fight against Japan in retaliation. Most people put that down to Churchill's influence. Churchill travelled to North Africa on a regular basis, all around Europe. I mean, you've got to think about that. that that's quite a risk. Right? If, you know, if people, if the Germans knew, and I'm sure they did, where he was travelling at particular points, I mean, take him out, and, and you probably would have altered the course of the World War II. This man had a huge influence. And when the people's confidence wavered, he took a stand. 
His defiance, I mean, he was a defiant, I can't swear, but you know, he was, people didn't like working with him. He was a defiant man. On the 18th of June, 1940, for example, after France had fallen, and a lot of, apparently, uh, uh, British people feared that Britain would go next. And he, he gave this speech, and he said, I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us on this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free, and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age. You know, God calls us to take a very similar stamp. You know, in all seriousness, our enemy is far, far worse than Hitler. And, and if we're Christians today, we, we know that, right? We know that Satan is far, far, far worse than Hitler. But if you're anything like me, I forget that. I forget we have an enemy who is at war. Right, Revelations, he has, he has descended to earth to declare war on God's children. And I forget that. We need to be a defiant people. Now, don't read that the wrong way. You know, there's a defiance that is ungodly and stubborn and proud in, in, the, in the wrong way. But there is also a godly defiance. Turn with me to Ezekiel, chapter 3. Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 4. He then said to me, Son of man, go now to the people of Israel and speak my words to them. You are not being sent to a people of obscure speech and strange language, but to the people of Israel. Not to many peoples of obscure speech and strange language whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I had sent them to you, they would have listened to you. But the people of Israel are not willing to listen to you because they are not willing to listen to me for all the Israelites are hardened and obstinate. But I will make you as unyielding and as hardened as they are. I will make your forehead like the hardest flint, hardest stone, harder than flint. Do not be afraid of them or terrified by them. Though they are a rebellious people. That phrase, I will make you as unyielding and as hardened as they are. You know, don't we often yield to fear? Like we've seen the famine. We have seen God at work. We know God is prompting us to do something, to speak. But we yield to fear. We miss the opportunity. God has been preparing the ground, but we miss it. We need to be, in the right way, an unyielding people. Go back to the uh, passage in of 1 Kings again. Verse 36. But I read a little bit a minute ago. We'll carry on. 
from there. From verse 36. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. You know, prayer is not this passive waiting for God. Prayer is interwoven with faithful service. You know, God is at work, and if we listen, as in you know, verse 1, when Elijah listened, it was God who prompted him. God had created the famine, God was now going to bring the rain. If we're listening in prayer to God... God prompts us and tells us what to do. But then we've got to be bold and courageous. But you know, at this point, Elijah, I think, needs to be very clear. It is not my power. This is, I, I always think that these things are for, for, for two purposes. It's for, it's for the, everyone else who's standing there, the thousands of people who have gathered on Mount Carmel. It's for them to know this is God. It's also for Elijah, right? It's for Elijah to know this is not my hand and my power. Pick it up in verse 40. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let them get away. They seized them and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. One verse. That's pretty radical, right? Fire had fallen from heaven. The people, it sounds like their hearts had changed. It sounds like they had kind of come to that decision. God is God. God is God. We recognize that. So why slaughter the prophets? I think it's because if we don't slaughter and deal with our idols in a radical way, they can still captivate our heart. You know, Psalm 66 verse 18, If I had cherished sin In my heart, the Lord would not have listened to me. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened to me. You know, what's the enemy of prayer? It's it's idolatry, right? It's, it's, It's things that captivate our heart. And don't we just like to kind of put our idols in a box and just kind of put them on the back shelf and, you know, I won't struggle with this anymore. I'll just put it over there for another day, you know? Like, no, 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 I just, I just put it over there. You know, if we're a teen or a student or becoming a disciple, I think a lot of our idolatry is to do with fitting in in the world. That, 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 that was mine. You know, I, I, I remember sitting down with Kevin Mott to, uh, uh, when he was studying the Bible with me. Um, yeah, November of 1997 or 98. And, and, and we got, you know, we'd done various other studies and we got through various different things and I thought, yeah, discipleship, this sounds great, this is what I want to commit to and, and I had a faith in God and all this kind of stuff and then we sat down and we did the sin study. And most of the sin study I kind of thought, yeah, you know, no sex before marriage, okay, I've got to deal with that and okay, you know, yeah, pornography, okay, yeah, you know, fine, okay. And then, and, and then towards the end of the study, and, and, and I wish he hadn't gone there, but he did. And if you know Kevin Mott, like he's, you know, he's a character, but you know, he can, he, he's, a very, he's a very small guy, very funny, very engaging, 
but man, can he hit you when he wants to. And he said to me, um, just a question, because I kind of, maybe he just thought my responses were too sort of, you know, maybe I hadn't really got it. Maybe he was right. Um, And he said to me, do you think a Christian should go clubbing? For me, and, 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 and maybe you've not been, like, for me, at the time, my world just fell apart. <laughs> I thought, well, uh, well why, why not? I mean, you know, I, can, I, can, I, I won't, I, you know, no sex before marriage. I got, okay, fine, yeah, you know, masturbation, pu- uh, pornography, I, you know, I, okay, I, I can, sure, okay, I can, I, no drunken, drunkenness anymore, fine. But, but... Why would I not be able to go clubbing anymore? What? My friends, I mean, that's what we do, right? I was a second-year student at the University of Manchester. I didn't see my friends during the day. We slept during the day. The only time I saw them... No, I, I, joke, I joke you not. Four, four nights a week, we were clubbing. That, that's what we did. That was our life. And, and, and what, do you, what do you mean? Oh, you know, I, the, the reason I nearly didn't become a Christian was because of that. It took me three days to figure out, you know what, you know, actually, giving up clubbing is really... No- and, and, and the thing that changed it for me, I, I went back to London that weekend for a friend's 25th birthday. He had organized this night out in Rygate. We went down to Rygate. I was kind of like to God, you know, I, no, I'm not going to mess around tonight, no girls, da-da-da-da-da. Went into this club, I got in there, and, and, and I felt like, you know when it says in the Bible, and Paul's like, scales fell from his eyes and his eyes were opened? For the first, I was, I was terrified. I was terrified. I thought, this, this is satanic. Like, I, I started to watch, having you know, read through Galatians 5.19, what sin really is all about. And I watched people in the club. And I thought, this is really satanic. I came back and I decided, that, that, that's it. But you know, the challenge, I think, for younger people is also the same for us older people. It's fitting into the world. It's not night clubbing for most of us. I don't know. Maybe Dave likes clubbing. He looks like he's set for it. No, I'm just kidding, Dave. I'm just kidding. It's the jacket, man. It's the jacket. No. But it's still, it's conforming to the world, right? Watching the same programs that everyone else in the world watches. Doing the same things. You know, we're called to be holy. Only the holy will see God. Only the holy will see God. I wish it was as simple as don't go clubbing anymore. I wish it was as simple as that. It's not. What keeps us from seeing God? Quick glances at lewd images? Gossip? What is it that hinders our prayers, ultimately? We'll pick it up in verse 41 and we'll finish up here. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. Nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, Go back. The seventh time. The servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. 
Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds and the winds rose. A heavy rain started falling and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah and faster than Usain Bolt, he tucked his cloak into his belt, ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Elijah knew God was going to send rain, right? That's what he told him. God said, I'm going to send rain, go to Ahab. So why did Elijah have to pray again? The prayer was an act of dependence. It was a reminder, I think, to Elijah. This is God's power. You've just seen fire fall from heaven. I still need to remind you and the rest of the people, this is my power, not yours. What do we know with confidence from Scripture? We know that the fields are ripe in the harvest. The Bible tells us so. We also know we are Christ's ambassador. That God is trying to make his appeal. Through us we know these things with confidence. We know as well that God will give us whatever we ask in his name as long as it is in accordance with his will. Sadly that doesn't mean the Ferrari for most of us. In accordance with his will. God has given us confidence just like he gave Elijah confidence. There will be rain. Ask. Sometimes we need to keep on asking. Right? You know when Jesus says, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find. The tense there is actually, it's the continuous. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Some of us, you know, that's not to say we can beat God into submission. Actually, you know, I I think personally, in my experience, sometimes when I continue to pray for something, I start to realize if it hasn't happened yet, I start to examine my own heart. Maybe this is not in accordance with God, God's will. might be very much in accordance with my will, but, it might, but, but praying about it consistently helps me to see that. In a lot of other situations, it's a bit like this, right? Elijah had to pray seven times for there to be rain. But we also need to keep on looking. We need to pray and keep on praying, but we also need to keep on looking. I want to ask you to turn there, but Zechariah 4 verse 10, I really like the beginning of this verse. It says, Do not despise the day of small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. Zechariah 4 verse 10, Do not despise the day of small beginnings. You know, for many of us, what we need to be looking for is that small rain cloud on the horizon. That's it. Right? It's just a small cloud on the horizon. You know, I've been super inspired. One of the most encouraging things for me over the last, however long we've been going, six or seven or eight, no more than that, probably coming up to maybe a year now, has been our, our Celio Men's D group that meets on a, on a Wednesday night with Rory and Phil and Joe and Dave, mobs in, uh, 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 via Skype. It's been a kind of an interesting... Uh, Dave joins us via Skype. We have kind of computers over here, and if Phil has to join us via Skype, we have Dave mobs here on Skype image there on Rory's computer and Phil on the computer here and me and Joe and, and Rory sitting there in one room. But, but it's been super encouraging for me. We started this year, and, and I, I should have brought the piece of paper up with me, Rory handed out this thing, uh, like a, a visions list. Lessons we'd learned from last year and visions and goals we wanted to see accomplished this year. We were going to commit to God. We were going to write them down, each of us, and then give copies to each other so we can hold each other accountable, so we can talk them through. It's not someone else imposing accountability on us. It's not... I'm not, you know, it happens in my house. I'm not enforcing, you go do this, Rory, you go do that. I, these are goals that the guys set for themselves, but we, we, we hold each other accountable. We pray through them, we're talking through them. 
you know, and already it's been super encouraging. So one of the things on my list was to start to see one of my colleagues at work, you know, start studying the Bible. It was a bit embarrassing how this kind of happened, but anyway, Tammy, reaching out in Selyog, meets one of my colleagues who's actually two doors down from me on my floor. Now I'd reached out to various other colleagues. This guy, Lorenzo, had just moved into Birmingham. I hadn't reached out to him. Hey, amen. You know, Tammy reaches out to him. He's living away from his family. He's living on Ward's Lake in the middle of Selyog. You know, he's like, it's a bit odd you're reaching out to me on the street, but sure, I'll come along to something. Next time there's something I'm available for, I'll come along to something. You know, do I know that Lorenzo's going to become a Christian? No, I don't. But maybe that's my rain cloud. I'm looking for the rain cloud. You know, we've been praying for parents from Asia's school. We have a, a South Birmingham kind of sports night. And a set of parents from their school that we've been reaching out to for a while came along to the sports night and loved it. They were like, this is great. The kids are getting on with the adults like this and kids being well behaved, all this kind of stuff. I mean, the Sigwalk kids were there, right? So that kind of helps, right? You know, they weren't watching my kids. My kids were doing crazy things. Anyway, it's great having Walter around. Anyway. Um, but, you know, I, I've been inspired by Phil, for example, right? Sorry, Phil, here you go. I, didn't, I should chat this with you before. I've been inspired by Phil. We were sharing on Wednesday night. Phil said to us, do you know, I've started reaching out to my colleagues at work. He said, I've also taken along my apologetics book. I keep it in the car. So if hard questions come out, I'm set, I'm sorted. I've got my apologetics book. That inspires me, right? That's encouraging. Phil is looking for that rain cloud. I'm inspired by Karen and Raquel and Harminda. You know, they've been reaching out to some of the women from Raquel and uh, uh, Karen's uh, playgroup there, the mums from there. And one of the mums recently came along for her second Bible study at our house. That's encouraging. Small clouds, small beginnings. Two questions for you. Are you praying for rain? And are you looking for rain? You know, James 4 verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. But also so often we stop looking. We stop looking for that rain cloud. We've been there four times, but we haven't been there seven times yet. In closing, I think from the passage, there are five things that come out to me, which I, I think are lessons about prayer. One, God provides the fire and God provides the rain. It's not our power. It's not our might. This is us, right? But prayer is what plugs us in. Prayer, number two, connects us to the plan of of God. Prayer is, you know, I said this to someone a few days, prayer is on one hand, it's us praying to God. It's also meant to be reciprocal. We're meant to listen. It's where we see and understand God's plan. It connects us with God. Number three, unfortunately, and I don't like this one, but God answers prayer when we're out of our comfort zone. It's very, you could probably share with me a dozen examples of where God has acted, but it's been in a situation that was difficult or challenging, or you stepped out of your comfort zone. When we're in a situation where we feel like we have control, there's no room for God to act. Elijah had to be on the mountain, he had to have, I mean, like if fire didn't fall from heaven, it was probably for Elijah, it was probably him on there with the bull, right? He was desperate, he needed an answer. He was out of his comfort zone. He was literally on the knife edge. Number four, we've got to destroy our idols. You can't just put them in a cupboard. We've got to get rid of the things that capture our hearts and that hinder our prayers. And number five, before my voice goes, we've got to keep looking for the rain clouds. Are you actively looking for God's answer to your prayers?
You know, as we go into 2015, I want to encourage you with two things. Pray for fire and keep looking for rain. Amen.